morning, everyone. I want to invite you to take a Bible, if you would, and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 44. And if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. Maybe you're like me. I, I grew up going to a church where they didn't read from the Bible, so that was kind of new for me. Last night I was at a wedding, and I was sitting with a, a couple that I met, and she was a doctor, and she said to me, well, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions. And I said, no, actually... Um, I teach the Bible. I said, could you name one? And she said, well, I, I don't actually know any. And I said, I hear that a lot. I said, I'd really encourage you to start reading the Bible because that's a, it's a myth that the Bible's full of contradictions, but a lot of people are banking their souls on that. I don't have to worry about the Bible. It's full of contradictions. We're in the middle of a story, a true story, of Joseph, of which we called this section in Genesis, God meant it for good. I want to encourage you, if you've never read the book of Genesis, it's really important to try to read books of the Bible straight through. Even though you might hit certain things, you're like, well, I don't understand. Just like watching a movie. You don't start in the middle and jump around. Just read right through and ask the Lord to speak to you. And when you come to things you don't understand, maybe write it down, make a note, but keep going. So right now, we're in the middle of this story. So if this is your first time, you're like in the middle of a mini-series. Who's that? What's that? And as much as you can, I'm, I'm sure that you'll be able to catch on. But for those of us who remember the big picture... Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, many years back was abandoned by his brothers and sold as a slave and ended up in Egypt. Meanwhile, his brothers lied to the father and said, oh, he was killed by animals. So Joseph rose to power in Egypt, and now his brothers have come down to get food from Egypt, and Joseph disguises himself, or for whatever reason, they don't recognize him. They had already gotten some food, gone back. Now they're back, and this time they brought their younger brother. The thing I want you to see here is that Joseph, before he wants to reveal himself to his brothers, he wants to test to see if they've changed. He wants to know if these same sorry guys that 20 years ago hard-heartedly just sold me off for a little bit of silver, these, these jerks who, who totally abandoned me and then who lied to, to their father and have left him in his grief for 20 years. I want to see if they're different. So in Joseph's mind, probably the best way to find that out is, I want to recreate a scenario similar to what they did to me. When I was younger and I was dad's favorite, they became jealous and they hated me and, and threw me under the bus. So what he's going to do here is he wants to create a scenario where he puts little Benjamin now, who's also dad's favorite, in a situation where they could easily do the same thing, throw him under the bus. So let's see what happens. Begin with me in chapter 44, verse 1. Then he, that's Joseph, he commanded his house steward, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as it was light, the men were sent away, and they with their donkeys. Then they had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow these men, go, go, go overtake them, and say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this, he's talking here about the cup, isn't this cup that you just stole from me, isn't this my cup that I use for divination? You did me wrong. 
So again, this is a ruse. Joseph knows this isn't the real deal, but back then in Egypt, they had these special cups for what we might call fortune-telling or witchcraft, and they would pour either oil or wine and water into them, and they would look at the patterns that the wine and water made, and then they would make predictions. They would either make some fortune-telling prediction about the future, or they would find out if somebody's guilty by looking into this cup. And so Joseph had a big silver cup of which that's going to be the ruse. So he says, look, here's what we're going to do. Put it in Benjamin's bag. I want it to frame him like it looks like he stole it because I want to see what my brothers are going to do when it looks like Benjamin stole the, the cup and, and, and they could just throw him under the bus. So look at verse 6. So the brothers are on the way back. They got their, their stuff. They're going back to see dad. And the servant overtakes them, verse 6, and he speaks these words. And they said, well, why, why would you say these words? We would never do that. Are you crazy? We would never steal your cup, right? In fact, they're proving their innocence. Look, the money which we found in, in our sack the first time, we brought it back. How could we steal silver or gold from you? Dude, we wouldn't do that. In fact, we're so sure that we didn't do that. If you find that cup in anybody's bag, look at this in verse 9. Whoever has this bag, let him die. And, and, and not only kill him, but the rest of us will be your slaves. So this shows that, that they were really confident. They trusted each other. Not one of them thought, well, man, I hope stupid Jim there didn't steal something. I always tell him to keep his hands off. Like they're 100% certain we didn't and would never steal your cup. So have a look around. Kill us if you find the cup on us. Verse 10, so he said, all right, well, let it be according to your words. And whoever I find that cup on, he's going to be my slave the rest of my life. So they're like, bring it. And they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. They're like, come on. You know how when you know you're innocent, you have confidence, right? Let's get this going. I could prove it. Remember when you were guilty, how slow you were, like when mom caught you with the cookies in your mouth, and, and, and she said, don't eat a cookie, and you're like, comes in the room, you got a cookie in your mouth, and you're like, come over here, and you're like, because you're busted, you got nothing to say, but when you know you're right, these guys are like, come on, take a look. No, this, this is really interesting. So he searched, beginning with the oldest, and they're like, see, not in that one, not in that one, all the way down to the last one, Benjamin. They're like, let's get this done, because we need to get out of here. When suddenly, it says, as he searched Benjamin's bag, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, can you imagine the, the emotions of every brother? Like, first of all, I don't think they thought for a moment that Benjamin stole it. But they got no explanation, right? How, how, <laughs> they're stuck. Like, oh, dear Lord, what happened? So they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. Now, right away, that's a little bit of a difference, right? Because I, I suspect 20 years ago with Joseph, they would have said, well, he did it. Take him away. But they're not going to leave him this time. They're going, hey, Come on, Benjamin, we'll go back with you. So already we see a change in, this, in these hardened brothers in the disposition toward the little one who's favorite. So now meanwhile, Joseph knows the whole deal. He's just waiting for him, right? So they, they show up at Joseph's house. Now they're terrified. Look at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came into Joseph's house, Joseph was there, and they fell to the ground before him. Now, 
In the Bible, you prostrated yourself before someone greater than you to show deference. But this word in the original language means they threw themselves on the ground. Like they just, they came barreling in and just dived on the ground, groveling and begging, please don't kill us. And Judah had no, what could he say? He's busted, the cup's on us, right? So he says, how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the sin of our servants. What you think about that? Because I don't think he meant God found out the sin of us stealing the cup. I think he probably meant it's all coming back to haunt us. What we did to our brother 20 years ago, God is, is exposing our sin. And I want to take a moment to remind you of something that the Bible teaches God is very gracious when we sin. Slow to anger, patient, right? But don't test him. Don't think that his patience is, is his absence. Because the book of Numbers, Moses once said this. He encouraged people to turn from their sins, but he said, but if you don't, be sure of this. Your sin will find you out. And I have seen over time that when people try to cover their sins and and think they're getting away from it. Sometimes God brings you to a very, very embarrassing public exposure. So it's always ideal when God's speaking to us about our sin to make it right. And so Judas doesn't know what to say. He goes, look, we'll all be your servants. Now again, that's, that's new. He's not going, sorry, well, I guess Benjamin will be your servant. He goes, take us all. But again, Joseph's testing them. He goes, no, no, far be it from me. I'm not going to take all of your servants. In fact, he goes, the only one I'm going to take is this, this guy, Benjamin. He stole it. Now notice the test. He goes, so you can go up to your father's house in peace. Go on now. Get out of here. I'm just going to keep him. Wow, there's the test. Are they going to go, yeah, well, too bad. This stinks to be dad, right? But no way. This time they're changed men. This time they not only care about their brother, but they care about their dad because right? last time they left this guy in grief, right? Now they care about their dad. And so Judah steps forward, and this speech that Judah's about to give is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. And it's very powerful. It, it's, it's, it's a model of, first of all, if you have to implore someone in power over you to, to make a decision, he appeals to emotion and love. And, but let's look at, so, so Judah's not even the leader, right? Reuben's the firstborn. He's the leader, but Judah, and I think there's a reason for this, why Judah steps up. Two things. Number one, if you remember, Judah has lost two sons now, right? Judah had two kids that actually the Bible says God put them to death, right? So Judah knows what it feels like to lose sons. And he's thinking about his dad and going, if, if we go back without Benjamin, dad's going to die on the spot. But the other thing that's really cool about this is that Judah didn't, didn't come off real well in chapter 38, did he? He went in with a prostitute. He, 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 he was just a, a jerk, right? But he's a changed man here, and that's encouraging because we all may have some skeletons in our past where we were jerks, right? But God changes people. Churches are hospitals. The gospel is a healing. And so what makes this so interesting is that I think this is one of the reasons why later in the book, when Jacob pronounces 
a blessing on his 12 sons. He picks Judah and he says, the scepter will not depart from Shiloh or from Judah until Shiloh comes. He actually gives Judah the honor of being the son through whom the Messiah will come. And part of it, I think, is the character that Judah displays here as a changed man. God changed his heart. Let's look at what he says. So he, first of all, rehearses with Joseph. He says, hey, do you remember, you asked us, your servants, do you have a father or brother? And we said, yeah, we have an old father, and he's a, he has a little child, and now his brother's dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father really loves him. And you said, bring him down here to me. But we said, ain't gonna happen. That lad can't leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said, if you don't bring your younger brother, you're not gonna see my face. So save your breath. Stop talking. If you wanna, if you wanna see me, you bring your brother. So Judah recounts how painful that was. So we went back and told dad that. Look at verse 24. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, Jacob, we told him what you said. And our father, when we ran out of food, said, go back and buy us a little food. And we said, Pop, we can't. We cannot go down there if our youngest brother Benjamin's not with us. We're not even going to go because the man made it clear we cannot see his face unless our younger brother, that's Benjamin, is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, he goes, listen, he goes, my wife bore me two sons. Remember we talked about this. It's like, I wonder what the other ten are thinking. Like, wait, what what are we, creatures? Like, so again, there's this favoritism. But he says, look, I had two favorite sons, and one of them's dead already. He already went out from me. Surely he's torn in pieces, I said. But remember, all scripture is inspired by God. Look at this next phrase. Jacob also said, and I haven't seen him since. Now, he might have just been grieving there, but, but I wonder if he's sort of implying that, you know, at least I heard he was torn in pieces. You know, there's some, as painful as it is to lose a loved one, right, there's something about having closure, right? Like some of you here may have lost a loved one in the military, but they don't really know what happened to them, right? I know there's a family here that, literally lost a son. Don't know what happened to him. Don't even know if he's alive. No one knows. So there's a sense of closure when you find the body or you can, you can bury the person. So Joseph or Jacob has this double pain of gone, at least as far as I know, he's dead and, and, and there's no closure. So verse 29, you're, you, this is what my dad said. If you take this kid from me, and harm befalls him, you're going to bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. In other words, I'm going to drop that on the spot. But I want you to learn how to read the Bible. When you're reading the Bible, ask questions, right? So when you go, what in the world is Sheol, okay? You can learn how to study things like this. So Sheol in the Old Testament was the word that they used for the place of where people go when they die. So, so remember, when God created us, he didn't create us to die. Death was the consequence of sin. And so there was a lot of mystery like, wow, he's not breathing anymore. He's, he's dead. So gradually, God was revealing that people have an inner person, a soul. You're not just a 
a, a, a piece of tissue. You have an inner person. And they began to understand that when people died, whatever it was that was inside of them left them and went somewhere. And they began to describe that as Sheol. And depending where you're reading in the Old Testament, sometimes it's neutral. Sometimes it looks like a bad place. And sometimes it looks like a good place. So as time went on, they understood a couple things. Number one, they understood that they're going to live forever, right? You don't have to go, wonder if they believe in everlasting life. Sure they did. Psalm 23. David said in Psalm 23, you know this, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, okay? But they also believed in a coming resurrection. Even Job, who was one of the earliest writers, said, I know my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I'm going to see God. Later, Daniel said, there's going to be a great resurrection. Some will rise to everlasting life, and some will rise to everlasting condemnation. So Sheol was the term that they used to describe where people went when they died. But it appears as, as you're reading the Bible that Sheol had two sections, a section for believers. And so the Bible would describe being gathered with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then a place of unbelievers that was torment. And so Jesus, I think, in Luke 16, talks about this. If you want to read Luke 16, he talks about a believer and unbeliever dying. He goes, one of them went to Abraham's bosom and he's comforted. The other one went to hell and he's tormented and they, there was a great gulf between them. And so I don't know if, if Jacob intended to imply his view other than to say, I'm gonna, if, 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 I don't, if I lose this kid, I'm dead. I'm out, right? So verse 32 says, your servant Judah became surety for the lad. I said to my dad, if I don't bring him back, I'll bear the blame forever. Now, look what Judah does here. He says, so here's, here's what I'm going to beg you to do. Please let your servant remain here instead of a lad and be the slave to my Lord and, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad's not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? Now talk about a changed guy. Would you do that? Would, would you say, because remember, Judah still had family back in the promised land, right? And he goes, look, I couldn't bear to see, see my dad's face and watch him drop dead. So here, you just take me, even though I'm innocent and he's guilty, you take me as a substitute and I'll give up the rest of my life and be your slave just so my brother and my dad can be happy. Someone pointed this out. This is the first example of a human substitution in the Bible, where someone who was not guilty offered to bear the blame so that someone else could go free. Now, you know that becomes a big theme in the Bible, right? Where, where ultimately Jesus, it's pointing us to Jesus, the innocent one, the one who knew no sin, was willing to give up his life and pay our debt so that we don't have to go to hell. Now, if you remember last week, twice during their encounters, Joseph burst into tears. He couldn't control his emotions. This one, this one was the straw. He couldn't take it any longer. The last two times, as he's hiding from his brothers who he is, he would go in private and cry. This time, he just loses it. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph couldn't control himself. 
before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. Because remember, there were Egyptians and interpreters in the room. Because Joseph had to pretend that he didn't speak Hebrew. So he clears everybody out of the room except him and his brothers. And then it says, he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. In Middle Eastern culture, we call this wailing. And I want to suggest that maybe we can learn something from this because for whatever reason, in American culture, we're taught that in periods of grief, yeah, you can cry if you need to, but compose yourself. You know, have some dignity, right? As opposed to going, let it out. If you want to scream, if you want to wail, if you want to emote with all of your soul, go right ahead. This does not mean that you, you don't have faith. This does not mean that you're some sorry, bitter creature. I think sometimes we stuff our emotions way too much. And so Joseph begins to just wail. And I'm sure his brothers are like, what is going on? So he says to them, I'm Joseph. And look what the text says, verse 3. His brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed. Now that's way too mild of a translation. The word here means terrified. This is one of the strongest words for terror. They were terrified, right? And I don't know why, but I suspect it didn't take long for them to do the math. If this is Joseph, and he has power over our lives, he probably remembers what we did for him, or to him, this isn't going to end well. I mean, these guys are like a, 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 an antelope encountered and, and by a roaring lion. They're just paralyzed with fear. But Joseph, in his compassion, is so gracious. He says, come here, me. Come closer. I'm your brother, Joseph. Now, it sounds like he's giving him a dig. You know, the one you sold into Egypt. I don't think he's doing that here. He's not going, jerks, remember what you did to me? I think he's just going, how can I convince them that it's really me? How would he know that, right? It's me. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And here's why I don't want you to be angry or grieved because God sent me before you to preserve life. And then down in verse 7, God sent me before you. Three times he says, God sent me before you. What? This is so important for us as Christians. We have to interpret our life circumstances from the lens of God's eyes and Scripture, right? If I try to make sense of what's going on horizontally, the whole thing can just blow up and you can go, God's a jerk, Life is meaningless. It's, it, this is stupid, right? So Joseph had learned something really important that whatever happens in our lives, even if it's horrible, somehow it's part of God's purpose. And somehow God is working behind the scenes to work it together for good. Now that doesn't mean that people who hurt us, that God's going, oh, I'll give you a pass on that. But the Bible's very clear that God uses all of our circumstances to bring about good. Even the death of Christ on the cross was not God going, oh dang, what, what are they going to do to my son? The Bible says he went up to that cross by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God planned for the cross to happen. But 
the Jews and Romans were entirely guilty for doing it. So, whatever's going on in your life, right, no matter how tragic or painful it is, look behind this and say, God's doing something here. And I can't see his hand, but I trust him. He says he's working to, to, to bring all things together for good. And sometimes he'll let you know over time. Sometimes we won't know in this life. In fact, when, when, when Jesus tried to wash Peter's feet and Peter goes, get off of me, you're not doing that. He goes, what I'm doing, you don't know what I'm doing now, but you'll know later. So maybe the Lord's saying that to you. What I'm doing in your life, you might not know right now, but you'll know later. So trust me on this. Now, meanwhile, a number of you are out there going, wow, am I sure glad I'm not going through tragedy like this. Two things to remember. A day could change things, but even if you're not, we're all called to come alongside and minister to one another, right? And realize that there's always going to be hurting people, and we're part of the body of Christ. And when one person suffers, we all suffer. So it, it gives us a template. We disciple each other to remember God is in control. So, as he begins to persuade them, listen, God was the one who did this. I want you to notice a phrase that he says. He says, God sent me here, right? But the reason that God sent him here was because God was going to, look at verse 7, to preserve a remnant in the earth, okay? God's doing a lot of stuff in the universe. He's got the whole world under control, like an like a, uh, airplane traffic controller on steroids. He's doing everything, right? But the most important thing that God's doing on planet Earth is he's calling out a remnant of people. It's sad, it's painful, and it's their own fault. But most of the world is going to hell. Not because God delights in it. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish. But the Bible is also very clear that God is calling out his elect. He is bringing people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation to surround the throne of God with those whom he has dis displayed gracious sovereign mercy to. And if you're a believer, thank God, praise him up and down that you are part of that remnant for nothing that you did, all because God loved you and fixed his love on you and brought you to himself. So knowing that, whether it's politics, history, everything that goes on, I have to remember, God is about building his church. That's the story. It's not about my job, my success, what's going to happen, who's going to be the president, there's going to be a wall. God is unfolding his plan, the church. And he bought the church with his blood. And there's still many people out there. Jesus said, I have many sheep and I must bring them also. And we have the privilege to work together with God to, 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 to see people coming to Christ. And then those of you who are parents, to raise up and pray to God that your children will be part of that remnant, that they will follow Christ, that they will embrace the gospel, and that we can continue to impact the world in this short time that we have on earth. And so as, as Joseph calms them and says, listen, we got five more years of famine. So go get dad and bring him back here. And then verse 14 says, he fell on Benjamin's neck and he wept and he kissed his brothers and he wept. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Now, now at this point, now Pharaoh finds out, this guy, Joseph, I love this guy. He saved our country. He's the only reason we're all alive. 
He's got a family. Man, I want to I show him love. So look at verse 16. When the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Hey, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and get your father and come to me and I'll give you the best of the land and you shall eat the fat of the land. Now at this point, he doesn't know the backstory. He doesn't know about being left for dead and all that stuff. He just knows, oh, you got family? They're probably in a famine. Tell them to live down here. I'll give them the, the best food, the best clothing, the best homes. Take wagons, he says. Bring your whole father's house down here. Don't concern yourselves with your goods. Just let 1-800-GOT-JUNK cleared out. Just come on. You can get, here's the credit card. You can get the best. When he says the best of the land, this is kind of interesting because every culture has great stuff. Like the Italians, they've got the food, right? And then some of you are like, no, it's, I understand. But, you know, <laughs> who has the leather? Do the Spaniards have the leather? Who's got the furniture? Who's got the architecture, right? So Joseph's, Joseph's parents and family, Pharaoh's saying, man, we'll give them the finest. They'll, they'll have the, the Lexus chariot. They'll be in the best palaces. Now, imagine you and me being American and materialists. We're going, finally, finally, Beverly Hillbillies. I was shooting up some crude. We're moving on up, loading up the trucks, right? But when Joseph reveals this and the sons reveal this to, to Judah, he doesn't care about that. Let's look what happens. So the sons of Israel did so and, and and they gave Joseph wagons, or Joseph gave them wagons and provisions, changes of garments, silver, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, grain, bread, sustenance for their father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. Now this is interesting. Joseph is a master understander of people's personal interactions. Sometimes we call this a social IQ, an emotional intelligence kind of a sense of how people function. Parents better learn this quickly because you're trying to manage your kids and so forth. So Joseph's envisioning, you know, when these guys are walking back for a week, that conversation could get ugly quick, right? Because we could picture Reuben going, see, I told you, you jerks, we should have never done this. You, somebody else saying, it, Judah going, you know, the only reason this has happened is because of me. If I didn't step up there, it kind of reminds me, remember when Jesus was training his disciples to be servants. But the Bible says that on the way up for Palm Sunday, he says, hey, what were you guys just talking about? Because they had been talking about who would be the greatest. That would have been a fun conversation. Peter's like, you know I'm going to be right next to Jesus. And, and John's going, no, you're not, man. You got a big mouth. So it shows us our human nature, how sinful we are. But, but it's funny because when he says, so, so Joseph, when he sends his brothers, he says, don't quarrel on their journey. It's an interesting translation because the original language says, don't get excited, right? And we're like, whoa, whoa, easy, tiger, calm down. But Joseph's basically saying, whatever you do, don't fight on the way home. God has won the victory. So then Joseph went up from Egypt, or I'm sorry, then they went up from Egypt to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. Now, if this was a movie, meanwhile, back in Egypt, Here's Jacob, right? Old man, nobody home, all of his kids are gone. He's been waiting. We don't know how long. It's easily weeks, months, right? 
I can suspect as time went on, Jacob's wondering, am I going to see any of my kids? Right? And so I would imagine, like the prodigal son's father, Joseph was waiting, hoping. Each evening he would kind of look out over the horizon, hoping to see a caravan, right? And so finally one day, the day comes, and it says, they came up to their father. Now remember, Joe, we, we read later, he had bad eyesight, so he's kind of like, wait, what? And, and, and as they get closer, he's going, no, that can't be them. They don't drive Lexus chariots. We got little, little Pontiacs or whatever. And he starts seeing all this stuff, and he's like, wait a minute, this, this can't be my sons. And they're like, it is, Dad, look, right? And so he's just kind of processing this, right? So they told him, saying, Joseph is alive. He's ruler over Egypt. It says he was stunned. He didn't even believe them. And so they had to persuade him. They told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father revived. And again, in our selfish materialism, we probably would have said, man, I'm going to look good in one of those chariots, you know. That, 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 that's a Tahoe, man. I'm going I'm to branch out in a bigger wagon. He could care less about this stuff. Look what he says. It's enough. My son Joseph is alive, and I'll go see him before I die. Now, as we close this morning, I want to remind you something. When you're reading the Bible, right, do not just read the Bible and go, that was interesting, nice piece of information. The Bible was not intended for solely information. It was intended for transformation. It was intended to pierce to our hearts and to teach us truths about ourselves and about God and about how life works. And so the Bible says all Scripture is profitable. The Old Testament, the Bible says, whatever was written in former times was written for us. And so I'd like to lead you through something that I want you to think about this morning. Last week we talked about change. This morning I want to talk about a biblical term that's used a number of times in the Bible. It's called reconciliation. Reconciliation. The word itself means to restore harmony in a relationship, okay? So you don't need reconciliation if you're already in a harmonious relationship. And harmonious relationships are awesome. In fact, the psalmist said how beautiful it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I think deep down in the souls of all humanity, there's a great desire for deep, rich, intimate, harmonious relationships. And the greatest longing of the soul of mankind is a rich, harmonious relationship with God. But most people don't even know that. They just know that there's something missing. Somehow there's got to be more to life. And maybe I'll find that through football. And so I gather with my friends at Super Bowl and we cheer and we, we laugh and, and we have an awesome time. But somehow that does. So I try a job. I try a new girlfriend. I try money. I try fun. I try vacations. I try education. But at the end of the day, the problem is not that there's something on earth that's going to restore that harmonious relationship. The problem is our relationship with God is broken. We're born that way. And if you're kind of new to this, your greatest need is not to get right with your cousin, it's to get back with God and be in a relationship with him whereby the other things begin to overflow from that. So I want to talk about three areas of reconciliation. The first two, though, 
are on the human level. The New Testament uses this word reconciliation three times. So we look at these brothers who were so fractured and fragmented and God's removing the barrier and bringing them together. The first time is in the life of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes, you know what? If you want to worship God, one of the things you do is give your gifts to God, which is good. He says, but if you bring your gift to God and you know that your brother, right, a fellow worshiper, has something against you, that you've broken the relationship, that there's disharmony. Jesus says, leave your gift because God doesn't care about your gift. He says, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and give your gift. In other words, Jesus is teaching that worshiping God while we're sinning against others is a waste of breath. The Bible says, how can you love God whom you can't see if you won't even love your brother who you can save. So this morning, some of you may have broken a relationship. It's your fault. You know it. And you've been too proud or stubborn to go and apologize and confess your part and ask forgiveness. Can I tell you, until you do that, Jesus said, don't waste your time worshiping God. Go and be reconciled. The second time this word is used, ready for this? Paul uses it in the context of marriage. Now, I know this is hard to imagine, but did you know sometimes people who are married struggle to get along? <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? Because we all got this, right? Sometimes that struggle intensifies to the point where there's bitterness, there's rage, there's, there's hatred, there's hostility. And the natural thing to want to do is to say, I want to get away from this person. I do not ever want to see them. That would be great. And so we separate, right? And there are times that it's necessary to separate. But what's comical is when people come to me and say, ever since I'm separated from my spouse, things are so much more peaceful. And I'm going, duh. I wonder why, right? So listen to this verse in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, if two of you are believers, do not separate. But if you do separate, which I think the Holy Spirit is allowing for the possibility there may need to be a separation. He says, if you separate, let them be reconciled. God's goal is reconciliation, right? Frequently when people separate, it's just like, just tell me what the steps are to divorce. Step one, reconciliation. I ain't looking back. I have no intention of ever going back with them. This is just my transition to freedom, right? I understand that there are times that divorce, though God hates divorce and it's not his plan, has to happen. Jesus talked about that. There are such egregious breaks of the covenant that it's irreparable. But I want you to know that God is all about reconciliation. And so let's pray that as a church, we can be a church that's seeking reconciliation, right? So we have a lot of people, and this is not intended to isolate anybody, we have a lot of people in pain in their marriage. Some of them are living together still, but they're totally separated, emotionally, physically, right? The goal is reconciliation. It's humbleness, it's repentance, it's forgiveness, it's continuing to work at it. So, and then as parents, I want to encourage you, this is a large part of parenting. Parenting is the petri dish where you teach your kids relationships. 
Yes, Billy and Barry are going to get in a fist fight or they're going to throw toys or they're going to be selfish. And it feels so frustrating. It's a constant journey to go, why can't we all get along, right? Meanwhile, every once in a while, they're watching you and dad going, well, you guys don't seem to have this fully figured out either. So we're all in the process here. So let's pray that we'll be a church that's, that's peacemakers, that, that, that we're fostering parenting and, and, and grace and marriages and relationships. Satan loves to ruin churches by broken relationships. And God loves to reconcile people. So the most important thing that, that I want to say about reconciliation is God is a God of reconciliation. We don't have time for to turn to this passage, but I want to commend you 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the last four verses. It's a beautiful passage because God does something extraordinary. Normally, if we've got a problem, whoever did the wronging is supposed to initiate the writing. Jesus didn't say, if your brother has something against you, that's his problem. Tell him to go figure it out. He said, if you did it, you go make it right. But the Bible says something extraordinary about God. It says God reconciled us to himself. He took the first move. He didn't do anything wrong. We did. We broke the relationship with him. And so God, in his love, the Bible says, God reconciled to us to himself. And here's how. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us. In other words, as I think about all the ways that I just walked away from God and I was disconnected, he took all of my sin and put it on the sinless Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for me so that I could be reconciled to him, so that he could forgive me through Christ and that I could become the righteousness of God in Christ, that he could look at me and see me as, as righteous as Jesus. This great exchange, God initiated that. And there's two things that you and I need to understand. Number one, if you're a Christian, that passage then says this. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We beg you to be reconciled to God. So every Christian has the privilege of coming alongside the people in our sphere of life and saying, are you connected to God? I might want to encourage you to change your self-service because God loves you and he sent Jesus to die for you. It's not about your good works, not about your religion. You could be an atheist, but if you come to God and you believe that Christ shed his blood and became sin for you, and you surrender to him and trust him, Christ will forgive you and you will be put right with God. And so I want to encourage you as we close this morning, Paul then says this, please don't receive the grace of God in vain. I urge you to be reconciled to God. Now for some of you this morning, you might be saying, I keep hearing him talk about that about getting saved, about giving my life to Christ, about repenting and, 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 and being willing to follow Christ. And, and I think I'm going to do that one of these days, right? You know what Paul said in this passage? He goes, I beg you to be reconciled to God. And then he says this, now is the time of salvation. I can promise you that right now there are a whole lot of people in hell who would beg for one more day. Because they're like, yeah, I'm I am going to do that. One of these days, I'm going to do that. The Bible says now is the time to get right with God. And so this is a work of the Holy Spirit. And if God's moving in your heart, then I invite you today to make your peace with God, to come and say, Lord, I get this. 
I know, I, he's talking right to me. I'm a sinner, and, and I broke our relationship, but you'll take me back. I believe that Christ died for me. Thank you for making Jesus sin so that I could be right with you. From this day forth, I'm willing to follow you. And by the way, those of you that are making that decision today or have made that decision recently, the next thing to do is to get baptized. You publicly show that. You don't go, I ain't telling nobody. Jesus said you confess with your mouth that he's your Lord. And so I invite you to embrace Christ. For the rest of us, thank God that Jesus reconciled us. Let's take that to others. And then as we work within our families, some of you might just on the way home say, hey, I think the preacher was talking to us, honey. I'm sorry. And then once you give your wife CPR, because she's never heard you say that, right? (laughs) She might even say, I'm sorry too. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for what you did in Joseph's life, Jacob's life, the brother's life. The same God who loved them and was calling a remnant is the same God who's with us this morning. The same Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross 2,000 years ago is in our midst. So Lord, reconcile people to yourself. Bring sinners to repentance. I pray right now that some would be surrendering their heart and believing and ready to follow. And if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to tell someone before you leave, hey, I, I, I gave my life to Christ. I got right with God today. Don't keep it a secret. Come tell me or somebody before you go. Father, bless us as we try to raise our kids and grandkids, as we try to grow this church. May the Holy Spirit work in all of our hearts to reconcile others to yourself. Thank you that right now, all over the world, people are getting saved and will spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.